in a pretty picture. <laughs> oh, it's so dumb and I love it so much. I bet you he has that right in the back pocket too. Didn't even need to look that one up. <laughs> uh, so now um, he, my nephew, and I are just like in this triangle of sending really bad dad jokes to each other. Well, mostly my nephew is just like, stop! But... <laughs> Inside, no, I, I know I, he loves it. I could be a part of that text chain. That sounds fun. I've seen. I've seen. It is super chain. fun. Oh yeah. Oh gosh, because I yeah, a lot of it started um, when when Tim got on board. Was at Disney. We were all together. He just was like, "Well, I'm jumping on that bandwagon." I love it so much. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, hi everybody. How you doing? Welcome hey. to Contagious Curiosity with Cat and Lainey. I'm Lainey, and I'm Cat. And you guys, this is a make em up. We're super sorry about last week. There was uh, some technical difficulties and we dropped the ball and we're super sorry that an episode wasn't posted, but we're here now. We well, yeah, we're here now. And we worked out the kinks a little bit for the episode because it was kind of emotionally uh, exhausting. So we're going to go it ahead and give the old fashioned, the old fashioned trigger warning uh, that this episode can be a little sad, slightly graphic and has to do oh, slightly with, graphic. You know, slight well, there are some there are some <laughs> moments. Some pretty rough and, moments. And has to do with murder and children. So just so mm-hmm. you're aware ahead of time and we'll have we'll try this and have is, fun telling you this, this is one, uh, not children who are being murdered. Well actually there are some children who are murdered, but it's all yeah. at the hands of murderous children. Which yeah, is which, uh, a twist. It's a whole dark level. Yeah. When yeah. we when we did it, we recorded this last week, both of us were just kind of looking at looking at each other, just going like, Why do we feel so off? This is just yeah. we're drinking. I got a message I got a message from Lainey the day after and she was like uh, you know, uh, do you did you feel off about that one? And I was just sad. Yeah, it was, yeah, it took a moment of uh, recuperating. I totally get it. But, um, you know, like I said, fix out the kinks a little bit, narrow it down. Instead of doing a top 10, we're going to give ourselves a a top five. uh, Yeah, it was over two. Wasn't it like two and a half hours? Yeah, it was two and a half hours of just utter disappointment and and just Just sadness. Yeah, (laughs) we would be telling sadness. we We would be telling the story. And then at just some point, we'd just go, oh. Oh, God. And then just silence for for a hot minute. So we're going to try and not do that today. Uh, Because, of course, this is still a curiosity podcast. It's a comedy podcast. It's a hodgepodge, whatever we like it to be. And Kat and I are the kind of people who like to be happy, but we also have a really dark fascination with the morbid parts of life. And And this was one that that I was really interested in doing because, I don't know, sometimes it kind of, in in a strange way, grounds me and helps me to realize just how things are not always good or as they seem. And mm-hmm. also, and also just the, the curiosity I had over, you know, psychology um, yeah. and oh, the yeah. psychopathy with children and how these things can come to be. And so the research kind of allowed me to open up a door of understanding how this can happen at such a young age or like the odds of it happening and those kinds of signs um, or sometimes, you know, for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. So, yep. 
And Kat and I, uh, we are not parents. We are not mothers. And But we have been around children a lot in our lives. I oh, That is yes. my trade. I work with children. It's what I do. And let me tell you, doing this research has made me second guess motherhood uh, quite a bit. To be honest, yeah. it's just, oh, ooh, it comes out of nowhere sometimes. You know. And there are a lot of signs a lot of times. But man, sometimes the Norman it really Bates is out syndrome. of left field. I'll call yeah. it the yeah the Norman Bates syndrome. Like, you know, you you want to love them so much, and if you love them so much, then well, you know they'll be okay, and everything's going to be fine, and they're not going to have a weird, you know, a that's basically Ed an obsession that, with me. Like, yeah, I know exactly. Which oh, yeah. I, and if you do any research or look into Ed Gein's, um entire relationship with his mother, he. Whew, the damage that woman did to that, it was that poor young man. I mean, yeah, he, he had severe mental illness and was just left to his own devices for too long and did not know how to survive once mm-hmm. Mommy Darest was gone. And so, like, ooh, yeah. I yeah. saw that there was a documentary um, called Munchausen Moms. And mm. I, I was I haven't given that one a watch yet, but it, it that was one that of, one is of the, fascinating. I have I have a, a little interest in why somebody would want to do something like that um, to a loved one or for their you know to their child. Um, and actually, there's a story that we're going to be telling in the podcast at some point in the distant future or, or the near distant future um, about uh, a really torturous, terrible, murderous mother, and it's quite sad. Um, but yeah, Munchausen, but, especially Munchausen by proxy, is when uh, you know, like if is when a parent a lot of oftentimes purposefully makes their child sick, right? Or hurts sorry, them yes, so that they can get the attention, and right. that is a fascinating subject. That's what because, I, yeah, that's what I was yeah, more or less. The Munchausen's uh, parents, are like, oh, I haven't seen it either, but man, it is, it is a deep dark world, and it really is most of the time just people so desperate for attention is the bottom line is they just want attention so badly they don't care how they get it they're gonna hurt their own children to get there it is brutally fascinating loneliness and power and control Mm mm-hmm which you know oh let's let's uh, what are you drinking today (laughs) oh oh god um so I figured it would be fun to make like a martini that was kind of childlike and child-based. It's, you know, our entire topic today. And I found online, somebody suggested a YooHoo martini. And I, I've had a chocolate martini before. They're pretty good. I love an espresso martini. So I figured, you know, it's probably around the same route. So I, I got some Sky Vodka and then my YooHoo and a little bit of Kahlua. And let me tell you, it's fucking gross. It's awful. I don't know why I decided this was going to be a good idea, but it sounded good in my head. Um, It's not great. You guys can give it a try if you'd like, but don't expect It sure does sound terrible. Yeah. (laughs) So, yes, I am drinking a very classy, very adult Yoo-Hoo martini. Mm. Clap, clap, clap. Clap, clap, clap. Very, very, very dignified indeed. <laughs> what you got uh, going on? So um, I kept it simple. I am I am drinking a, a good old fashioned glass of bug juice, green, mm. um, in the most childlike cup that I could find. So honestly, I kept it simple this week. I wanted to take it easy um, with a lot of the uh, 
I wanted to take this week. I exercised a lot today, so I wanted to not get drunk necessarily uh, or start drinking when I worked off all those calories. So instead, mm-hmm. I'm just going to suck it down with sugar now that I'm thinking about it. This is not <laughs> this. This cannot be a good beverage for you. But but there's there's only so much in it. It's very little. I suppose you could add rum to it and some gummies. Mm, the rum and would then, be good. And some crushed ice. And a just a dash of like the green apple Kool-Aid powder. Ooh. You know, just to give it a little little I suppose you, that would be a great Do great you remember to... those Kool-Aid packets? It was like Kool-Aid ice or something. The Dude, ice, it yes, had like when that you... mentholy almost feeling. Oh no, that's not the one I Where I'm like when about. you drank it, it it like cooled the back of your throat. Awesome. You don't remember? It, it I was do not remember that. a very distinct, interesting feeling. Do you remember I how they the, made it, that? I think it was Kool Aid, but and this was like when I was in grade school, grade school and like freshman year. So this must have been like between 2000 and 2004. There were these packets of like a Kool Aid powder that was like the size of a sandwich bag, and it was like in these. They were. It was like in these uh, like metallic-y it was in a metallic-y plat- like, wrapping, and it was like a Kool-Aid freezer or something like that. And you would mix up like a gallon of water in with, these, in, this, in with this Kool-Aid packet, and then you would put it in individual cups, and it would make slushies. Oh, and you would interesting. Like, 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 like your own Italian ice. Do you remember that? No, but I'm that gonna doesn't sound healthy. Oh, the sugar. Made... It was, there was so much sugar. Like, you didn't delicious. have to freeze it or anything? It just no. made a weird icy? No, you, like, no, you froze it. Oh, okay. But, but in my mind, all I could think of was, like, you know, diapers and, like, how those oh, little the beads. Like, the gel. Beads. Yeah, with the, as soon as it get, touches water, like, that's all. Oh, blah, blah, blah. oh yes. Yeah, so, oh, those little beads <laughs> that's that interesting. expand. Yeah, and so I remember it. And then one year it just stopped, and I, it's never it's never left my brain. I, I got to look that up at some point. But I think it must have been, like, Kool-Aid slushies or something along that line. It, the marketing had to have been simple. Oh, I'm sure. All right, so we are jumping in to this top five because, like we said, top ten, too much. Too much, you guys. All right. I'm going first, right? Of course you are, yeah. Yes? Um, yep, yep. Okay. It's going to be, um, I have two that I'm going to be presenting today, and uh, you have three. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I'm on the right, pr- on the right yep. track here. All okay, right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. <clears throat> And oh wait, before I do start, I'm sorry, we're I'm all, all over the place. Uh, I did just want to go over a really brief like definition of psychopathy and especially child psychopathy and, and like what it means. Um, so psychopathy is a neuropsychiatric disorder marked by deficient emotional responses, lack of empathy, and poor behavioral controls, commonly resulting in persistent antisocial deviance or criminal behavior. And then children who exhibit psychopathy traits require specialized treatment. They don't respond well to usual methods of discipline since they seem unfazed by consequences and they don't care if others are disappointed in their choices. So it's very hard, you know, unless you are a professional or have multiple professionals helping one child to to get through this. And if you recognize the signs, it is important to do something about it. Because even though people who are psychotic make up over half of all crimes committed, it's extremely important to remember that not everyone who is psychotic becomes a murderer or even a criminal. And there are plenty of people, many very successful, that go on to live completely next to normal lives, if not normal. 
And it's, it's really important for adults to recognize these signs of potential child psychopathy so that they can get the help, like I was, I was talking about earlier, and that that particular child needs as soon as possible. Because having a good support system and helping to treat psychopathy is the best thing you can do for a child and, or anybody that is exhibiting those signs. And a lot of times, especially with you know the amount of serial killers and true crime that I listen to, you always hear um about like parents in the beginning of you know their lives noticing things were off with their kids or that but they wouldn't say anything because they feel that in doing that would somehow protect them that if they didn't talk about it or they just kind of beat it out of them a or pretended it wasn't there or you know like it doesn't work it's not it's not yeah. something that's just going to go away it needs you need to address it uh, for everybody to live a happy life. And like Dahmer's parents knew from an early age that he had a weirdo fascin like weirdo fascinations, especially with dead animals and things. But instead of addressing them, they ignored all of the signs. And it's, yeah, it's important to just recognize what's going on around you. And don't take it for granted. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Now bringing it to this mm, young SOB. In September 1989, cops in Warwick, Rhode Island were horrified when they entered the brutal crime scene of the murder of 39-year-old Joan Heaton and her two young daughters. The rage of the murderer and the overkill they demonstrated was ap apparent upon first glance. Joan Heaton had not only been stabbed 57 times, she had also been bludgeoned in the head and strangled. Her 10-year-old daughter, Jennifer, was stabbed 62 times, mm. and 7-year-old Melissa had been stabbed 30 times, and her skull had been crushed by a nearby kitchen stool. The attacker had been so ruthless and so brutal that he had broken the blade off in Melissa's neck when he was stabbing her. Mm. Cops became worried about their lack of evidence on, a, su on the, a suspect, so they reached out to the FBI's BIU, which is the Behavioral Analysis Unit. And they got expert profile profiler Greg McCrary to join the case. McCrary believed that it was almost certain this slaying was committed, uh, connected to another extremely violent and unsolved murder that had taken place two years previously. The brutal killing of 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer happened only five doors down from the Heaton house. On July 27, 1987, Rebecca Spencer, who had been getting ready to move, was stabbed with a packing knife 58 times in her living room. Like, can you imagine, especially with the, the three that he killed, the mother and the two girls, hundreds. He stabbed hundreds of times. Like, how do you not get tired just doing it 20 well, times? The adrenaline must kick in. There's, I mean, there, there was, a, there was a, this was just such this intense like overkill. Yeah. yeah it's just pure rage. 58 times. <sighs> Greg was told there... police. Oh, sorry. Was it, there was a personal connection here, right, as well? No, so this was a random attack? Not really. Yeah, so, it's so not it very personal. It wasn't, usually, it wasn't like, motivated by something okay. that the victims had done. Because in most cases, usually when there's more of an overkill, it's usually somebody that, you know, you would know. Mm -hmm. It's the idea, you know, but I suppose or that, that if somebody is just out. You. Yeah, or I suppose that there are just some people out there who just need to get it out. Yeah. I yeah. Well, there are better ways than stabbing there somebody are 58 ways. times. <laughs> I 
So the profiler, Greg, uh, told the police that their suspect most likely lived nearby and was familiar with the houses, residents, or both. He believed that the murderer hadn't entered the house with the intent to kill because both murders were carried out with a weapon of opportunity, meaning that the murder weapon was taken from the house the murders were in. The killer did not bring it with him. He thought it was more likely that a bur burglarer had been surprised by the occupants of the house. Due to the blood evidence left at the Heaton home, Greg McCrary also advised police to be on the lookout for someone with a bandaged hand because the murderer had accidentally hurt themselves in the attack. While on patrol, two police officers saw a local kid, 15-year-old Greg Price, walking down the road with a bandage wrapped around his hand, so they decided to ask him a couple questions. Greg, who had already had a number of run-ins with the law, told them that he had gotten drunk and tried to steal a car. He punched out the driver's side window and cut his hand in the process. And, like, the cops immediately were like, uh, Okay, oh, oh, you're gonna just tell two police officers that? That doesn't make sense, but Might they be didn't have be anything. Better than the latter, yeah. Yeah, they didn't have any reason to question him more, and they had no evidence, so they um, they had to let him go. And um, they did, however, look into the area where Price said that he attempted to steal the vehicle, and there was no broken glass in the area, and there was no report of a vandalized or missing car. This, along with the fact that Greg lived on the same street as the murdered women and girls, he had a bandaged hand. The fact he had a bandaged hand put cops on high alert when it came to Craig Price. Wanting to make sure that they had him in his house at the time of the search, police waited until the evening to surround the Price home and serve Craig's father with a search warrant of the property. It didn't take them long to find Craig's bloody clothes in a trash can behind the residence. Mm, not even. Like, didn't even, try. yeah. No. Burn him. Burn him. I mean, he gotten away with it when he was 13, the first murder yeah. of Rebecca Spencer. 13, so why... The, the arrogance and the confidence mm -hmm. uh, hit a little different. And the absolute amount of not giving a fuck like, yeah. this, that the this arrogance. man, boy, has shown ever since. This so man, once in, boy. <laughs> <laughs> once in custody, Craig Price confessed almost immediately to all four murders with absolutely zero remorse. He was 13 when he committed his first murder of Re Rebecca Spencer. And the biggest problem with this confession was that Craig was only a few weeks away from turning 16. So because of uh, Rhode Island state laws, anyone 15 or below could not legally be tried as an adult. Mm. So because of this, serial killer Craig Price could only be held at the Youth Correctional Center until his 21st birthday and not a day more. The law was on his side and Price absolutely knew it. He knew. Less than a month away. He quoted, uh, he said, When I get out of here, I'm going to smoke a bomber. Price yelled <laughs> at the crowd as he was led from, with, wow, as he was led handcuffed from the courthouse. How very Tom Green. How very dickish. Um, Craig also knew that the law was only with him up to a point, though. The entire five years Price spent in the Youth Correctional Center, he refused his mandatory treatment, fearing that whatever he said would incriminate him and that the state would find a way to keep him behind bars. And he wasn't wrong. It's exactly what everybody tried to do. But yep. he, he absolutely refused, even though it was ordered of him to go through psychiatric evals and treatment, just never said a word for five years. 
and the people of Rhode Island were having none of it. Detective Kevin Collins, who assisted with the confession, along with members of the victims' families, they, uh, they formed the citizens opposed to the release of Craig Price, Corp. He organized rallies, launched fundraisers, appeared on national news shows and in publications like Larry King Live, Times, Newsweek. Corp hired planes to fly banners in major cities around the country declaring, Craig Price, moving to your city? Beware. They were not fucking around. No. They, I think tens of thousands of dollars were raised in order to just raise awareness around not only the state of Rhode Island, but the entire country. Yeah, Being to like, get this people kid asking these questions. Cannot. And laws were actually changed. So now juvenile violent criminal records are not sealed and they are now public record when they are violent, extremely mm-hmm. violent. This also helps with the restricting of purchasing of firearms, which is great. And thanks to his extreme, extremely violent nature and refusal of treatment, Craig Price has never been released from from any like he has been Thank incarcerated God. since his 15th birthday. He is now 48 years old because he has gotten into so many fights and just constantly is putting himself back into trouble and there was i think it was 94 95 um (laughs) george uh bill george clinton yeah bill clinton um came to rhode island to do a speech and as soon as he stepped out there was a a banner being flown by one of those planes going over just being like Mass or serial killer Craig Price being released from prison, and um, Clinton ended up doing a speech and like talking about how things needed to be changed. And even though days later the laws were actually changed, so like I said, all the criminal records are now open and public. Right. They couldn't retroactively go back and change Craig's sentencing. He, you know, even though he helped change those laws, those laws were never going to. Um, be an effect on him and so um yeah the last time he continues to attack people in the correctional facilities now he was sent to florida because he just kept getting in so much trouble and the latest one being in april 4th 2017 when he stabbed a fellow inmate with a five inch blade and on january 18th 2019 price was sentenced to another 25 years so with any luck he will never get out Because he can't, he had a correspondence um, with this woman and they were writing back and forth for years and he admitted to her. So it's really hard, especially when it comes to serial killers to take anything that they say seriously. you, You have to take everything they say with a grain of salt because when it comes to motives or, you know, what the murder was actually like, what actually happened, we have to take their word for it because 99% of the time. That's all we have. And he said... They were the only witness to the event. He said he laughed when he heard that um, it was supposed... That it was a burglary gone wrong because it wasn't a burglary. He went there with the intent to kill them because it had been just building inside of him for such a long time. And with Rebecca Spencer, he he smoked some weed and I think (sighs) did some acid. That's... Yeah, he took some acid. And he was just talking about how he went originally over to her house with a baseball bat and was gonna like bash her head in and then turns out that they had left the house and so he was furious even more and that's why he over like killed her the only drug that he the only he only smoked weed and had lsd oh took some acid but i mean he he said that because um 
when he was a little kid, his dad worked for Pepsi and he had a Pepsi bike and there was like 19 year old, like, you know, adult ish almost kids that were white and they were calling him the N word and tracked him down to the car and broke his bike, like mangled his bike. And after then he was like, that's when I started hating people and just wanted to murder. But that's a very convenient excuse, you know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that racism doesn't make people want to kill, but, like, this guy is just, he, yeah, he's bad news. Bad news bears. Well, it's interesting to, to find, like, throughout these, because some of these we won't be able to talk about, the ones that we were going over last week mm-hmm. with each other, and it's quite incredible to find the ones that actually helped to change laws and how yes, things are yeah. shaped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Without without these incidences, they wouldn't even be put in place, but I suppose they wouldn't need to have them in place if they weren't random ass inst- like incidents like this. Yeah. So scary shit. Scary shit. So moving up the ladder with our number four is Mary Bell. Mary Flora Bell was born May twenty sixth, nineteen fifty seven, and she's an English woman who as a juvenile, murdered two preschool-aged boys in Scottswood, an inner suburb of Newcastle, upon Tyne in 1968. The first murder happened when she was 10 years old. In both instances, Bell informed her victim that he had a sore throat, which she would massage before proceeding to strangle him. So scary. It was her lead-in, yeah. It was like, so you, you, you have scary. a sore throat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. This is what needs to happen. And That so. is such like a horror movie. Like, you, if, you know, yeah. if it was in a horror movie watching it, everybody would be like, that's so cheesy. And so, but, um, like, but it's absolutely but, uh, terrifying when you know it's what so happened. It's uncomfortable, in real life. yeah. If I were to see that, honestly, yes, it's, there's, there's some camp to it, but it's also, it's also unsettling. It is for, for extremely unsettling, it, yeah. yeah. Um, so, Belle's mother, going into her past a little bit here, Belle's mother, Elizabeth Betty Bell, was a well known local prostitute who was often absent from the family home frequently traveling to Glasgow to work and simply sorry to work and simp and simply just leave her children in the care of their father if he was even present mary was her second child born when betty herself was 17 years old the identity of mary's biological father is unknown for most of her life mary believed her father to be william billy bell a violent alcoholic and habitual criminal with an arrest record for crimes including armed robbery However, she was a baby when William Bell married her mother, and it is unknown if he is her actual father. So I'm wondering, do they have the... Oh, that's why she has the last name, Bell, I was going to say. Yep. So, yeah, that makes more sense to me. Mary was an unwanted and neglected child. According to her aunt, Issa McCricket, within minutes of Mary's birth, her mother had resented the hospital staff for attempting to place her daughter in her arms, mm-hmm. shouting, Take that thing away from me. That is just such a great few moments of life. You know, you know what? You really know what's interesting? Sets the stage. I've always wondered, and I should look this up. If there's a study based on like how stress and hatred and anger affect somebody during a pregnancy, because when oh you, no, when you, ha- yeah, a lot. When you stress, it affects like, them what a is lot. it? The relate like a release of like a cortisone, like a, a certain type of I can't enzyme. remember the exact. I'm not sure either, released. but it like, and it just, it kind of like permeates through you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, imagine just being in the crock pot of a, of a mother's belly, just seasoning in hatred and anger mm-hmm. and disdain. 
And then when you're born, the mother's just like, get it away, you and know? And, and then the, you, know, you can just tell the, where it goes from here. There are, there have been a lot of studies of what happens when a child is un like not touched often enough by their parent. Oh, is right. it held often enough and the, um, and verbal, like if they're not cooed at enough and it's always harsh, the, the insane negative effects that come from that, especially Very the lack of touch and affection. That is, it is, yeah, one of the, we need it as creatures. Nurture. Mm-hmm. Well, as a baby, toddler, and a young child, Mary frequently suffered injuries and household accidents, quote. While, her, while she was alone with her mother, of course, which led her family to believe that either her mother was deliberately negligent or intentionally attempting to harm or kill her daughter. On one occasion, in about 1960, Betty dropped her daughter from a first-floor window. On oh. another occasion, she plied her daughter with sleeping pills. Oof, she drugged her. Yeah. She is also known to have once sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have children of her own resulting in her older sister, Catherine, having to travel alone across Newcastle to reclaim Mary from this individual and return the child to her mother's home on White House Road. Despite this negligence and abuse of her child, Betty refused repeated offers from family to take custody of Mary, whom she, as a pretty well-known dominatrix at that time, is alleged to have begun allowing and or encouraging several of her clients to sexually abuse in sadomasochistic sessions by the mid-1960s. So, at that point, you know, she's between 1 and Ted. You know, 1 and 10. She was, mm -hmm. in 68, she was just turning 11 around there. So, this was a very sad childhood. Yeah. Both at home and at school, Mary exhibited numerous signs of disturbed and unpredictable behavior, including sullen moods, and sudden mood changes, and mood swings, and chronic bedwetting. Mm. She is known to have frequently fought with other children, both boys and girls, and to have attempted to strangle or suffocate her classmates or playmates on several occasions. On one occasion, she is known to have attempted to block the trachea of a young girl with sand. Oh, God. Jesus, just yeah, just, just shove sand down her throat. Yeah, they make it sound so like scientific, blocking her trachea. But like, I mean, that's that's just a little girl, like pounding sand into a child's throat. That's insane. it's it's a horrific image. Yeah. Oh God. Well, the, this violent behavior in turn made many children reluctant to socialize with Mary. No. Who would frequently spend her free time <laughs> with a young woman? young girl, I should say, named Norma Joyce Bell, the 13-year-old daughter of the next-door neighbor. And although they shared the same last name, they were not related. So <laughs> two Bells living side by side. I'm sure there's some creepy poem about it. Like a weirdo child's nursery rhyme? Yeah. We should make something like that. We should. Yeah. Really uncomfortable and unsettling. Like, just... Like the songs Poetry. that were usually in the back of like scary stories to tell in the dark. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love those books. <laughs> According to one classmate, by 1968, she and her peers had become accustomed to the sudden and marked changes in Mary's behavior. 
and when she began exhibiting distressful mannerisms, including shaking her head violently and forming a steely gaze, her peers instinctively knew that she was about to become violent, with the focus of her stare being the individual she would attack. I have seen that look. Oh. Mm. On Saturday, May 11th in 1968, a three-year-old boy was discovered wandering dazed and bleeding in the vicinity of St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood. The child later informed police he had been playing with Mary Bell and Norma Bell atop a disguised air raid shelter. When one of the girls, the child was unsure which one, had pushed him seven feet from the roof to the ground, inflicting mm-hmm. severe lacerations to his head. In the same evening, the parents of three small girls contacted police to complain that both Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they played in the sand pit. Same day, attached two children. Oh, you know, it's like spree. You know, they're starting to get, they're starting to escalate. Yeah, just not able to control it at all. Um, and up at this, up up to this point, it's really kind of discussed that Norma was more or less the buddy, the sidekick, definitely mm-hmm. not the alpha of the two, you know, in regards mm-hmm. to the ringleader. So, you know, she was able to convince another girl to do it with her. So she must have also had a very sad and upsetting oh, life as well. people, well, yes, probably. But also, I am sure that she was so incredibly manipulative. Oh, yeah. They're Mary Bell. Get, they get, to, they're good at getting the weak ones. Yeah, and to rope them in and to make them feel like they... You know, yeah, that and that kind of manipulation can start extremely young. And there's not much information on Norma, actually, because I I went on a little separate deep dive and it's just very little. It it usually kind Mm -hmm. of comes off of the Mary Bell. Yep. um, uh, Papers. But that evening, both girls were interviewed about the incidents. So those two incidents that had happened that day, both girls denied any culpability for the air raid shelter instance incident. Sorry, claiming they had simply discovered the boy bleeding heavily from a head wound after he had fallen. <laughs> further question, yeah, right. Further, qu- further questioned about the attempted strangulation of the three young girls, Mary denied any knowledge of the incident. However, Norma admitted Mary had tried to throttle each of the girls. Oh, so she attacked four kids. Yes. In one day. Yes, because it was three. There were three oh. sisters, and 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 yeah, and a, yes. Jesus. Two yeah. incidences, but four people. But four children. Yeah. Oh my God. Um. Norma uh, went on stating, Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? And then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop. This is all in quotes here. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up, and Mary did the same thing to her. So Jesus. she went, she, yeah, she went belly up pretty quick on this friendship once she was confronted I mean, with the uh, the severity of what was going on. Can you imagine how terrifying it must oh, it have would been be. to watch that? That that's yeah. your friend, and you are. I mean, you you've got to be death deathly scared of this friend that you have and she's for some reason not strangling you but you know that could be you at any second that could be you yeah so the police notified the local authority of the incidents and of mary's violent nature but due to their age both girls were simply given a warning and no further action was taken (laughs) love it all right 
So this is, May, these are the warning signs. They are. These are, these are like, red flags. The, the, I mean, I don't literally, think they can literally, get any bigger. It's just yeah, like one of those uh, big waving. flailing inflatable um, yes. arm men at like yes. <laughs> car Flat. sales. Yes, yes. <laughs> just no turnaround. No turnaround. <laughs> oh, I, just, I should I should get one of those for my uh, for my yard and just put the words red flag on it so everybody stays the fuck away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you so, can say that you gave everybody plenty of warning. The signs were there. <laughs> yeah, the signs were there. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right. So on May 25th, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of a derelict house located at 85 St. Margaret's Road. So right down the road from her. Mm-hmm. She is believed to have committed this crime alone. Brown's body was discovered by three children at approximately 3.30 p.m. He was lying on his back, with his arms stretched above his head. Aside from specks of blood and foam around his mouth, no signs of violence were visible upon his body. A local workman named John Hall soon arrived on the scene. He did attempt to perform CPR, but it was not successful. Ooh. Ooh. Could you imagine? He's Coming got a bloody, that. frothy mouth, and he's been dead for... A hot minute, and that yeah. guy performed CPR. I mean, like, good on him. That's a good civilian. Like, yeah. thanks for trying your best, but, ooh, that's rough. Yeah, you do what you gotta do. When it comes to a child, I, I probably, ooh, I don't know. so frothy. I, I probably would, too. And I don't bloody. know. Well, actually, let's, let's be honest. I've actually come up, I've I, come upon several dead bodies before. I, have, and I was gonna say, I have seen dead bodies before. You know when somebody is dead. Yeah, and Especially you know when, when they've been, been gone a for a while. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There's... When he is clearly freezing cold to the touch, he's like, no, gotta be sure. Gotta, let me just, just, let me, gotta be sure. Let me Maybe try. The, well, well, you know, in regards to, I've never come upon a child. No, true. So but it might be I a completely different psychological. And this was a different period. This was a different time. They were not as desensitized necessarily as we are now mm. with death and, and how, how available it is right next to us all day every day everybody like you know we celebrate dying death in our culture these days and kind of getting better it is getting well yes but um you know back then it was probably a very traumatizing traumatizing thing to come upon especially as a child yes yeah but especially when the it's a child victim yeah well so as hall attempted cpr uh, two local girls 10-year-old Mary Bell and her 13-year-old friend and neighbor, Norma mm. Bell, appeared at the doorway to the bedroom. Mm-mm-mm. Both were quickly shooed out of the house, and the two knocked, the do- knocked on, to the- on the door of Mar- Martin's aunt. So they left the house and went to Martin's aunt's house. A Miss Rita Finley informed her, One of your sister's bairns has just had an accident. We think it's Martin. But we can't tell because there's blood all over him. Mm. Oh, the girls just went there and just straight s- up dropped the bomb. And they, yeah, and just, and just, that, that's a separate kind of hell, you know? And that's a separate kind of, like, psychopathic behavior to me. Mm-hmm. When you walk up to them and you just want to look at how they react and you just want to tell them. And it's like, it's like enjoying it all over again. I wonder if she so did young. feel she anything. Was- or if she, she was, was looking to feel something. Maybe, but she was 10. She was 10. I mean, <sighs> I feel like, yeah, she had to enjoy it. 
Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the following day, so right after, Dr. Bernard Knight conducted a post-mortem upon the body of Martin Brown. Knight was able to fi- was unable to find any signs of violence on the child's body, and thus was unable to determine the child's cause of death. Although he was able to discount the invest to the investigator's theory that the child had died of poisoning through an ingestible tablet. An inquest on June 7th returned an open verdict. On the afternoon of July 31st, 1968, a three-year-old named Brian Howe was last seen by his parents in the street outside his house playing with one of his siblings, the family dog and Mary Bell and Norma Bell. When he did not return home later that afternoon, concerned relatives and neighbors searched the streets without success, and at 11.10 p.m., a search party discovered Brian's body between two large concrete blocks upon the Tin Lizzie. The Tin Lizzie. The Tin Lizzie. The first policeman to arrive at the scene observed that a deliberate but feeble attempt had been made to conceal the body, which was only covered in clumps of grass and weeds. (laughs) cyanosis was evident upon the child's lips and several bruises and scratches were evident upon his neck a pair of broken scissors also lay next to him close to his feet the coroner would then conclude that brian had died of strangulation and that he had been deceased for up to seven and a half hours before the discovery of his body the killer had evidently squeezed brian's nostrils closed with one hand as he or she had gripped the throat with the other Numerous puncture wounds had been inflicted to the child's legs before death. Sections of his hair had been cut from his head. His genitals had been partially mutilated, and a crude attempt had been made to carve the initial M into his stomach. Yeah, she, uh, she went for it. And, in turn, after all of this report, they had decided that a relatively small amount of force was used to murder the child, and this led everyone to believe that and conclude that the murderer was another child. Mm. So they were on to the idea that something was amuck, or something was amiss, something was amiss. Numerous gray and maroon fibers were discovered upon Brian's clothing and shoes. These fibers did not source from any clothing within the Howe household, and had been transferred to the child by his murderers, or murderer. On the afternoon of August 4th, the parents of Norma Bell contacted the police, stating her daughter had wished to confess and that she knew of the death of Brian Howe. DCI Dobson arrived at their home, formally cautioned Norma, and asked her what she knew. Norma then informed Dobson that Mary had taken her to the spot on the tin Lizzie, at which point she had been shown Brian's body. Mary had then demonstrated to her how she had strangled the child, according to Norma. Mary had confessed to her that she had enjoyed strangling the child before describing how she had inflicted the scour marks to his stomach with the razor blade, which then had been hidden at the crime scene. And the broken scissors, as well, were also hidden at the crime scene, you know, confessed by Mm -hmm. Mary. Norma then led the police to the crime scene and revealed the location where the razor blade was hidden. A drawing Norma made of the wounds inflicted to 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 the body precisely matched those described by the coroner. So, according to Mary, according to Norma, she wasn't even there. That she showed up after and Mary Bell told her all these things. Mary Bell was visited at her home in the early hours of August 5th. 
On this occasion, she was notably defensive when confronted with the discrepancies in her previous statement. She informed detectives, You are trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor out. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Ten years old. Ten years old. It's quoted by the police officer in the report. Later that same day, Norma was questioned again. On this occasion, she made a full statement in which she admitted being present when Mary had actually strangled Brian. Mm -hmm. According to Norma, when the trio were alone on the tin Lizzie, Mary seemed to go all funny. She pushed the child to the ground and into the grass and attempted to strangle him before stating to her, my hands are getting thick, take over. She had then run from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. A forensic examination of clothing owned by both girls revealed the gray fibers discovered upon Brian's body were a precise match to a woolen dress owned by Mary, and the maroon fibers upon the child's shoes were a precise match to a skirt owned by Norma. Furthermore, the same gray fibers had also been found upon the body of Martin Brown. Mm. Bell was convicted of both murders in December of 1968 in a trial held in Newcastle, when she was 11 years old and in which her actions were judged to have been committed under diminished responsibility. Her accomplice in at least one of the murders, 13 year old Norma Joyce Bell was acquitted of all charges. Mm-hmm. Bell was released from custody in 1980 at age 23. A lifelong court order granted her a nominated in <laughs> I did this last time too. <laughs> granted in her anonymity. Anonymity, thank you. Which mm-hmm. is one of those words. Oh, I, I know get better, it. but still, especially just, looking it, at it and trying to read it from by looking at it is harder and, than just yes, yeah, yes. Anonymity, totally <laughs> which has since been extended to pr- protect the identity of her daughter and granddaughter, since she has lived under a series of pseudonyms. Out there, still living the dream. Yep, because she was a child, so got to be let kid. out when you're 21. <sighs> so scary it's terrifying yeah and what's even i wonder if it was just her evolution of being a serial killer or if because norma was there and she there was a witness that she decided to go like full-on with mutilation yeah because that was the only time that's a huge jump It, it you know if it was like okay strangulation and then cut to also stabbing him a little bit. Okay, I can see that jump. Or cutting his hair off. But she stabbed him, started carving her initial into him, and cut his hair and yeah. strangled him. And, like, by a new way of pinching his nose and covering and, and choking him. Like, she was that escalating is at a fast rate. A, yeah, that is an extremely fast rate. So I wonder if that was all just her or if she was going a little bit extra because there was a witness there and well showing off well technically according to because norma wasn't she a witness with martin brown no they thought she they uh you said she was alone when she did that one and she just strangled him right yes so you're right she could have been performing and just seeing if there was whatever rise she could get out of norma was just another added thing onto top of her disgusting yeah i hope she got help 10 years I really old do. genital mutilation yeah where the fuck do you get that Woo. um from being sold by your mother well yeah and you know and and yeah and it's, it wasn't Abuse, just it wasn't zero just lack of love 
and I know that everything terrible that happens to a child in that sense is terrible, but according to the reports, it wasn't just sex per se, but it was also pain and BDSM and masochism. And so like, so it was a, it was a whole, it was a whole nother level of, of torture, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there are unfortunately people who do have to go through these things, but they don't turn out to be murderers. So we're not excusing the fact that she, just because she was abused horrifically is gives her a pass for being a murderer right but it does it does it It does it it does change you yes and and especially considering that she was never a loved child and never a wanted Mm -hmm. child and she was probably abused for the majority of her life she didn't know any different yeah i'm sure getting into you know the um correctional facility was probably where she got the most attention she ever had right that's a good point and that's why they talk about reform. Yeah. Mm. Some people can do it. Others, they cannot. They don't they do don't well with to. reform. Or yeah, like, yeah, that too. All right, we are... Oh boy, ladies and gentlemen, this guy. This We're guy here. Number three. Yeah, number three. In 1995, 14-year-old Sandy Charles was arrested and tried as an adult for the murder of 7-year-old Jonathan George Timpson. The murder took place in Larange, which is said to be an isolated indigenous town in Saskatchewan, Canada. Sandy Charles admitted that he had a fascination to near obsession with the 1988 movie Warlock and its sequel. Have you seen Warlock? I can't remember. No, I have not. We, but okay. You had, you had brought it up to me. It's on the list now. Yeah. So, oh God, it's a, it's pushy. Within the days leading up to the murder, Charles claimed to have watched the movies over 10 times. If you haven't seen it, Warlock is an American supernatural horror film directed by Steve Miner and written by David Towery. Towey? Towey. <laughs> the Warlock is the son of Satan who travels from the late 1600s to modern-day Boston, Massachusetts with the mission of destroying the world. The warlock is sent on a mission by Satan to reassemble the Grand Grimoire, a book separated into three pieces that can unmake creation. In the movie, the warlock is able to acquire the ability of flight by murdering an unbaptized virgin boy, cutting off his fat, boiling boiling it down, and then drinking the fat. Uh. So following his arrest, Charles told police he was in the thrall of spirits when he committed the murder. Quote, I started to think about killing, he said. Something wanted me to. Charles and his seven-year-old accomplice, who is unnamed due to his young age, during the time of the incident, uh, committed one of the most brutal murders Saskatchewan has ever seen. On July 8, 1995, Charles lured seven-year-old Jonathan George Timpson into a bush under the guise of needing help looking for a ball. When out of sight, Charles began to brutally stab Timpson with a paring knife, only stopping when the knife became embedded in the boy's eye, according to prosecutor Robin Ritter. He then beat the boy with an old beer bottle, slashed his throat, and eventually crushed his skull with a 12-pound rock, uh, which is just insane overkill. Another overkill, Unbelievable overkill, and he is a very young boy. He's 14 years old. So it's about the same age as um, Craig Price, which is the other right. boy I was talking about. Which is, oh, when just, the testosterone's really boys. starting to kick in. 
Yeah. <laughs> but that's only the beginning of this real-life horror show. After Timson was dead, Charles began to slice and collect 10 to 15 strips of human flesh off the boy's body with another knife that he had taken from his mother's kitchen. When Sandy Charles finished his crude butchering, he took the collected flesh back to his home and began to boil it down to liquid on the stove in the hopes that Satan would give him the ability to fly, just like in the movie. I haven't been able to find out for certain um, if he actually drank it, because there... He never, he never admitted to it. Yeah, he never admitted to it, or if he did, they were not putting it in print, and there are a couple... I just... I haven't seen enough places confirm it yet, but on religioustolerance.org, which I don't know how credible that is. <laughs> so <laughs> they claim, claimed he, he did indeed drink it, but I'm not 100% sure on it. The victim, Jonathan Timpson, was described as a playful and outgoing child who had a winsome smile and a couple of missing front teeth. His hero was Zorro, the masked, uh, caped, sword-wielding vanquisher of villains. To make a gruesome story even more tragic, the young, unnamed accomplice was Timpson's own cousin. His body was found on July 11th in the Aspen and Cedar Woods, a few hundred yards from his grandmother's house in Sunet Crescent. When Charles was arrested, he told the police, quote, There's a spirit in my room that gave me those thoughts. He had been contemplating suicide, but a voice told him that it might be just as good to kill someone else. At his trial in June 1996, a psychiatrist tested testified that the accused did not see the victim as humans but only as an object whose death was necessary to fulfill his deluded plan so this puts him in the category of a product killer just mm -hmm. someone who kills not because for the love of the actual murder or killing it's someone who the whole intent of doing it is the end result of the murder they want the body like Dahmer um yeah and he had to get completely shmammed he had to drink so much in order to be able to kill anybody that he was blackout yeah. and because he didn't like actually being he didn't like the murder part yeah oh yeah he, he got very sloppy and there's the one time where he passed out he got so drunk and then he woke up handcuffed and he was just like what the fuck no but yeah. that, that twist and he still got away with it the worst and, and, the and body in the car least, yeah that night on the like being stopped by a cop and he had a body in his car but he was just smooth talker and they let him go Didn't, yeah <laughs> anyway <laughs> um on august 2nd 1996 he was found not guilty by reason of insanity the judge concluded that sandy charles quote was suffering from a mental disorder so as to be exempt from criminal responsibility in 1996, Charles was placed in a psychiatric hospital in Saskatchewan, but in June of 2000, Charles found himself back in court, accused of assaulting a prison nurse whom he had knocked unconscious. As far as I can tell, he's still detained at that psych facility, actually. Um, he has been moved oh, really? oh, no, he's been moved around a few times, but he is still incarcerated. Not incarcerated, the right term. He's, he's in custody. In 2014, is, it, is, he, is he hospitalized or yes. is he? So yes. he is institutionalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 2014, um, he was sent. He was sent to the regional psychiatric center in Saskatchewan, but pleaded to be transferred back to his other one in the hopes that he could be released someday. Because I guess the one, the regional psychiatric center is oh, is in Saskatoon, 
excuse me, but he wanted to go back to Saskatchewan because Saskatoon is a super intense facility. And he knew he wouldn't be getting out of there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's him. That's... It's a rough one. I just want to know if, I just want to know if he drank it. I know, I know. Like but him. you have to imagine that he did. Like, he went well, through the entire trouble. he went through all trouble. that work. Yeah. Yes. He wanted to fly. It's, it's I gotta watch that movie. I gotta watch that My God, movie. it is, it is extremely poosh-tastic. It's a very poosh movie. Why, how, when would you have brought yourself to see that movie? How would that have happened for you? Do you not know any of my family? <laughs> That's... <laughs> The very first time that I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show, I was like six or seven. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's a little bit different from what you were describing here. Warlock? It's just a horror. It's an American bad horror film. Yeah, the cheesy, Rocky horror, cheesy horror film. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is not a horror no, it's to not, me but as I'm a just child. Say, it, well, it's isn't not it? a horror. Well, I mean, I guess it would be. There's like blood kind of murder and cannibalism kind of... in it. And, you know. Mm, mm, the, but, table, the, the, the table. The yeah. table scene. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks like a ham. It's very well and done. It's so rubber. <laughs> it make, it actually makes me think of um I think it's the House of a Thousand Corpses oh. with the with um uh uh Rain Wilson, the guy who plays Dwight from the office. Mm-hmm. Remember when he gets brutally murdered in that movie mm-hmm. and then they turn him into like the fish man? It's like this <laughs> it was like the same kind of it was Oh god. Did you ever watch Motel Hell? No. Meats, meats, a man's gotta eat. Oh god, it's like, <laughs> it's real bad. My dad and I used to watch just the worst horror films. We would have Sci-Fi Saturdays too, where we would uh, Frankenfish would come on pretty frequently. Oh, yep. That and Mansquito, which is a man-sized <laughs> mosquito. Oh, that's on the list now. That's oh, it's fantastic. The CGI mansquito. is. <laughs> it's their, it's their, it's their attempt on like the fly. Did they get so Jeff Goldblum bad. to come in? Did they? <laughs> oh, Jeff <God>. Goldberg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Ooh. So our number two uh, is on um, two folks in particular. So John Venable and Robert Thompson. Closed circuit television at the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle taken on February 12th, 1993 showed Thompson and Venables casually observing children, apparently selecting a target they would later learn. The boys were playing truant from their local primary school, which they did regularly. Throughout the day, Thompson and Venables were seen stealing various items from shops, including sweets, batteries, a troll doll, and a can mm-hmm. of blue paint. The troll doll. really. I know, blue. it always gets me. It really places you. really places you in the time. Yep. One of the boys later revealed that they were planning to abduct a child, leading them... And lead to lead him to a busy road alongside the shopping center and push him into oncoming traffic. This was the plan. The same afternoon, James Bulger, from a nearby town called Kirby, sorry, Kirkby, went with his mother, Denise, to the New Strand Shopping Center. Whilst inside the A.R. Tim's Butcher Shop on the lower floor of the center, around 3.40, Denise, who had let go of her son's hand to pay for shopping, realized that her son was missing. Oof. She only Oof, let go to so pay fast. at the counter. He was inside the store. It was very fast. Oh, Thompson and Venables. 
it's oh my god that fear that that so I know that we don't quick. have children but I can I can I can still feel that mm-hmm. anxiety and the fear and oh I've apologized to my mother a number of occasions because I would I was that asshole kid that would run and like hide in the clothing racks but I knew to I lift my too. feet up you know so that when they looked under they wouldn't see my feet Oh, that is a bastard thing. Yeah. You are a bastard. I know. It was funny to hear your name get called over the intercom. (laughs) Yeah. It felt a little different back then now. People do panic a little bit more and have a little bit more, uh, you know, they have more caution than they used to. It's probably a good thing. It is. No, I mean, there's reasons. I mean, we're telling stories of exact reasons why we do it now. (laughs) So... Thompson and Venables took Bulger to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, around a quarter of a mile from the New Strand Shopping Center, where they dropped him on his head and he suffered injuries to his face. The boys joked about pushing Bulger into the canal, and eyewitnesses said that when they saw Bulger at the canal, the boy was crying his eyes out. The boys went on a a two-and-a-half-mile walk around Liverpool, and they were seen by around 38 people. But most bystanders did nothing to intervene. Two people challenged Thompson and Venables, but they either claimed that Bulger was their brother or that he was lost and they were taking him to the police station. At one point, the boys took Bulger into a pet shop from which they were ejected. So, there were that many witnesses. They're dragging this little boy around. He's crying. He's got wounds on his face. And nobody really forced themselves into that situation. Nope. Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Take, take, take the child away from him, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose that would cause even more panic. And then do what with the child, too? Like, I guess go to the police. I guess there's something. There are things there, that you know, could if, be if, done. If, 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 follow them. Well, that would be even more strange now, too. Huh? <laughs> oh, you're, you have a good point here. I suppose, though, based on or, what Especially if you're like, yeah, okay, and, it's brothers being brothers. Yeah, because a witness witnessed uh, him crying his eyes out and uh, having injuries on his face at the canal, and other people saw him after the fact walking around town. Mm-hmm. So you're right, brothers being brothers. I suppose it could be that way, especially when you're dealing with children this young. You want to have, you know, some kind of faith and confidence in them. I would suppose. <laughs> so eventually, the boys arrived in Walton, with Walton Lane Police Station facing them across the road. They hesitated and led Bulger up a steep bank to a railway line near the former Walton and Anfield Railway Station, close to Anfield Cemetery. One of the boys threw blue Humbral modeling paint, which they had shoplifted earlier, into Bulger's left eye. They kicked him, stamped on him, and threw bricks and stones at him. They placed batteries in Bulger's mouth and, according to police, may have even inserted some into his anus, although none were found there. The boys finally dropped a 22-pound railway fish plate on Bulger. He sustained 10 skull fractures as a result of the bar striking him to his head. Pathologist Alan Williams stated that Bulger suffered so many injuries, 42 in total, that none could be identified as the fatal blow. Wow. Oh my god, that's awful. It's tragic. Thompson and Venables laid a dead or dying James Bulger across the railway tracks and weighted his head down with rubble and hoped that a train would hit him and his death would appear to be an accident. After they left the scene, his body was cut in half by a train. 
Bulger's severed body was discovered by a group of children two days later. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Do you imagine? Oh, yeah. my God. Another group of children found his severed body. Oh. Yeah. A forensic pathologist testified that he had died before the st- he was struck by the train. Police suspected that the boys had sexually assaulted Bulger since his shoes, socks, trousers, and underpants had been removed. The pathologist's report, which was read out loud in court, found that Bulger's foreskin had been forcibly pulled back, and when Thompson and Venables were questioned about the aspect of the attack by detectives and a child psychiatrist, Eileen Vizard, the pair were reluctant to give details. When Venables was let out on parole, his psychiatrist, Susan Bailey, reported that visiting and revisiting the issue with John as a child and now as an adolescent gives he gives no account of any sexual element in the offense. So Weird. denial. Weird. The police quickly found low resolution video images of Bulger's abduction from the New Strand shopping center by two unidentified boys. The railway embankment upon which the body had been discovered was soon adorned with hundreds and bunches of flowers. The family of one boy, who was detained for questioning, but subsequently released, had to flee the city due to threats from vigilantes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So people yeah, I were... I mean, yeah, people they were... were, they, were mean, they were looking. Yeah. I'm pretty furious just listening yeah. to it. The breakthrough came... I knew this boy. I know. The breakthrough came when a woman, upon seeing a slightly enhanced image of the two boys on national television, recognized Venables and remembered seeing him playing truant with Thompson at the Boodle area that day. She contacted the police, and the boys were arrested. Truant is the, playing hooky, right? Yes, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's why when they have a truant officer come to your home in some states and some fancier schools, mm. it's because mm-hmm. you haven't shown up for a day or two, or you're late all the time, and they're just coming to check and do, like, a wellness check, if you will, and also inform yep. the parents of what's going on. Usually that's big, wealthy schools in my opinion, like, or giant public schools. There were 300 people at our high school, and that's yeah. all staff and faculty included. Even back then, there was there was no staff. There was no staff to come to your home. You got a phone no. call, and they didn't even expect you to call back most of the time. The child murderers were sent to a Young Offenders Institute after being the youngest child murderers in English history, where they stayed until their release at the age of 18, in 2001. They were both given new identities on the understanding that they had been rehabilitated and did not break the law again. Though John had to receive two identities because he would tell others about his crimes and proudly admit to being a child murderer. <laughs> oh my god. And well, yeah, I have more to talk about in regards to where they are uh, today um, at the end of this because it is fascinating to, to I guess in these cases because so many of them are released and they live normal yeah. everyday lives and they get new identities and yep the the freedom for the freedom from that kind of persecution around them so like i.e. you have child rapists who you know you get told when they're moving in the neighborhood you know and you get that idea you know they're they're visible on a on a public site so that you can do you can use at your own discretion and do what you feel you need to do in regards to wanting to live in that area or not or complain or so on and so forth it's just always a topic for um you know locals especially in rural towns they Mm -hmm. always know their they always know their the pedophiles but in this case um especially with the sexual elements involved you know it doesn't it doesn't have to count you know and you know, sometimes people just don't get rehabilitated from something like that. I don't know. They, 
there's a, I don't, I don't have the actual information in front of me, but it would be interesting to see how many pedophiles are actually rehabilitated and, or, or they just don't get caught again. Yeah. That's a very hard. Yeah. Cause uh, they just might get caught. They just might not get caught again. It's a sad thing. And so I think what was just what bothers me is because it's not just a murder, but the sexual element to it really, absolutely really fucks with me when I know that they're just out there getting to live their life as an ordinary person. So I have information about where they are. Um, anyways, Bulger's parents have said that the senseless murder devastated their family and have spoken frankly about how they've struggled to keep going after the loss and the huge public interest in their family, of course, has put a strain on everything. As Venables has been convicted of crimes since, as Venables has been convicted of crime since, they wanted his lifelong privacy to be revoked. Bulger's mother, however, disagreed and argued that the anonymity should be maintained to avoid vigilante justice. Yeah, no, I get that. The father lost his legal challenge and the attorney general's office concluded that the injunction was still necessary and justified. In 2008, seven years after being released from prison, Venables was arrested after a drunken fight and was given a formal warning by the probation service. He was also given a caution for being in possession of a Class A drug, cocaine. Mm. Two years later, he was sent back to prison after he was found with images of child sexual abuse. The parole board recommended his release in 2013. However, in 2017, he was arrested again for possessing additional child pornography images and sentenced to 40 months behind bars in February, Mm. 2018, almost 25 years to the day after he murdered Bulger insane in August, 2019, his father warned that Venables would soon be on parole from his most recent period from behind bars and a parole hearing is expected to be held in October of 2020, halfway through his prison sentence for the most recent offense. Bulger then said, Venables is up for parole at any time now, and if it is granted, he will be released into the community under a fake name and a new identity. He is dangerous. He's a predatory child abuser and killer. I'm terrified he will strike again and harm another child, like my James. Yeah. He is clearly one of those ones that is not taken to reform. He is not taken to reform, but let's see about Robert Thompson. Thompson's new identity is protected by an unprecedented injunction, which applies around the world, meaning that even searching for his address could lead to a prison sentence, which is bizarre to me. For him or for, for us? For him. No, for for uh, him. So like, he uh, would like get if arrested if somebody searched no, his sorry. name. No, sorry. If we search, like, if we start actively searching for him, it's possible that yeah. we would receive. Oh, a okay. Sentence. So yes, us. So for if us. he's protected okay. by yes, an gotcha, unprecedented gotcha, gotcha. injunction, as they would put it, mm-hmm. he has not reoffended since being released. And in 2010, it was reported he was in a long-term relationship with a man who does know his true identity. Police oh. believe that Thompson was the ringleader behind the attack who urged Venables to follow him. So in this case, they're implying that Thompson was the alpha of the two and he is reformed in a way, but Venables, his partner, who he is claiming was not necessarily the ringleader, uh, is the one that's continuously reoffending. And I don't know, it just sounds odd to me. I feel like that's a, that's that a swap odd. on it, but maybe he's just that kind of smart, you know? Detective Phil Roberts from the local forces serious crime squad received a call in 1993 notifying him of the missing boy. 
So the detective who found everything uh, mm-hmm. is quoted saying, as far as I'm concerned, that day, 20 years ago, I stared evil in the face. I think Thompson was in charge, but they both attacked James. They were a match made in hell, a freak of nature. They went out that day to kill. I truly believe that. And if they hadn't been caught, I fear they would have struck again. Pure evil, and there's nothing that will change my mind. Damn. And that's all we have. Yeah, on that's fucking haunting. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The sexual abuse element of it is. I know. Is I really. Hate it. Yeah, they're so young. All right. Well, it's a good thing that this last one is super upbeat, you know, and super happy. Is it? Is it? No. Yeah. I'm not no. sure which one when you picked. So uh, this for is your, your last number one, so. one. This is uh, Jasmine Richardson. Oh, and that yeah, bitch. it doesn't get lighter, folks. It does not. Get it lighter. Does. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna end with we're gonna end with a bang. Yeah. Woo! All right, let's do it. Number one. In April of 2006, Jasmine Richardson, a 12-year-old girl, and her 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Steink, murdered Jasmine's parents and her 8-year-old brother. Mark and Deborah Richardson had not always had the easiest of lives. Mark had previously been involved with a biker gang and had become addicted to drugs, which he had to go to rehab for, and Deborah also had her fair share of addictions. They both decided they wanted a better life for themselves and got clean before starting a family. Jasmine was the first child born around 19, either 1995 or 1994. It wasn't quite um, forthcoming with her actual birthday. And Tyler Jacob was born four years later. The family attended a local church and Deborah even volunteered for Narcotics Anonymous and strived to inspire others to lead sober lives. In 2003, Mark was promoted and the family got a large financial push forward. They all moved to Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, and into a lovely large three-bedroom house. This was the first time the family wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. And so this was, they really had been trying to give like a good life for their kids and saving as much as, as possible and just doing all of the right things. And then finally got a little leg up and push forward to, uh, at this promotion and at 11 jasmine started to dress and act differently her puffy pink unicorns changed to dog collars extreme makeup and all black clothing and she began to self-identify as a goth kid which Mm. i mean who hasn't i mean who hasn't especially in the early 2000s (laughs) yeah this is 2006 so yes very this was very much on brand with that era this is me now mom yeah she looked, um, so a lot of people in the community speculated that it was because she matured very early. She looked much older than 11, and outside influences were always treating her as such. I she li- stand firm that only creepy people say shit like that. Oh, She's just so absolute. mature for her age. No, but you, you've definitely seen not that kind of mature. But I, no, body physically matured. She, like, physically, her body... She looked much oh, older than she, she did eleven. She developed yes. earlier than yes. Okay. She got big tits and skinny waist and big hips at eleven, and people speculated that 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 kind of maturity, not yeah, 
not which attitude. which brings in which brings in the weirdos especially it absolutely does yeah and when everybody around you is treating you like you're older just because you look not like a 12 year old little girl yeah it's yeah it's hard and we've yeah yeah we've both been 12 year old girls <laughs> yeah and a lot of people probably can relate in, in even if even if nothing specific mm-hmm. happened just like everybody can relate to feeling a little uncomfortable by, you know, like I, I, I would, I would, have you ever just been, like, there's a movement now where it's like, don't touch my kid. Don't hug my kid unless yeah, yeah, yeah. to it. Absolutely. But I grew up, I grew up in the era where like everybody would just grab you, hug you and kiss yep. you, you know? And it was, you know, and it was so seen like, as cute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could be uncomfortable. Yeah. She lied on all of her social media sites saying that she was older um, and she claimed that she was 15, so three years older, and all of all of them had a pretty dark feel to them with handles like X Killer Kitty X and Runaway Devil with a bio yes. that simply said, quote, welcome to my tragic end. Oh, pain. I'm so, I'm so much in pain. <laughs> Oh, nobody understands. My life is just a dark abyss. This, yeah. When you stare to the abyss, the abyss stares back. Like, that oh, so, God. That's the South Park goth episode. That Hashtag deep. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody have cigarettes? I need cigarettes. Oh, God. <laughs> all in all, though, she had a really decent family life. And she had a she had a great childhood. She had parents that were super involved, and like they lived in a nice place. They weren't struggling anymore. You know, just pretty pretty decent childhood. Nothing that seemed nothing that would, would that would trigger an alarm or a red flag. Yeah. Here. But know, and she's just an adolescent going through, you know, going through a phase as one yes. might call it. So that's what she seems to be doing right now. Until she met her star-crossed lover that she met at a punk show classic jeremy steink had spent much of his childhood being abused by his biological father and then a series of stepfathers after his own abandoned the family he was also constantly picked on in school and seemed to have a general shitty child childhood he was always told you know <laughs> getting called jeremy stink and just yeah, well yeah always gonna have week, kids when, being when dicks we- when you were telling me this one last week and you told me to look up the picture of him, I mean, if you guys get the chance, you really should. I mean, you, can <laughs> you really spell should. the name wrong and yeah. it's, it's going to come up right. But we've all known that guy who looks just oh, like yeah. this guy. Yep. Jeremy Even nowadays, Stein- they S- still exist. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, like, especially in 2006. Like, oh, God. It was... Um, a lot of lead singers and bands looked like that too. I it, feel yeah, like, the, you know so. what? That's a good point. Actually, that's a good point. Yeah, they always said they had the shaved heads, the the mm. lip rings, the you know the eyeliner, all black. The, yeah, the vitamin big metal deficient. like bead um, necklaces, mm. you know, those big like metal ball necklaces. The ball ones, like they were, yeah, like, yeah, they were yeah. like ball bearings and shit, and ball. It was like the puka and, like, necklaces, washers. and then it moved up to like metal water like necklaces. <laughs> this is me now. Exactly. Oh. Except this. Except this dude isn't. Is this guy is the worst. This guy. Yeah. This guy is a human ashtray and he's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want that on a shirt. A human ashtray. <laughs> piece of shit. Ashtray. 
<laughs> oh god he ended up dropping out of school his sophomore years so that he could start working and move out of his mother's house but he couldn't make it work so he had to move back home anyway because he's oh. just that good at 22 he decided to take a real deep dive into the goth scene and quickly started to become the very popular with underage and preteen girls like that kind of deep mysterious guy oh instantly became that guy going on yeah because he's just had a tough childhood Mm. so dark (sighs) deep jasmine and jeremy met at a concert when a mutual friend introduced them who was also 12 i don't understand why he had so many Mm -hmm. 12 year old girls just like a posse of them yeah actually in our area I have seen a lot of young girls fall for this guy. Like I feel like every small town has this dude that is over 21 that hangs out with teenagers that are in high school because he'll buy them alcohol or buy them whatever and they end up getting taken advantage of and it's considered normal. Like, oh god, it's so gross and predatory and just disgusting. And uh, everybody just acts like it's okay. Yeah. It's very weird. It's very weird. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, So Jasmine and Jeremy quickly hit it off and they started dating in secret. Jasmine started to get into trouble constantly at school and was sneaking out of the house on a regular basis to meet up with Jeremy. When she was supposed to be babysitting her little brother, she ended up leaving him alone to go and hang out at a gas station. Oh, that's, <laughs> yes, course. yes. Oh, my God. In a rural town, like, when we mm-hmm. grew up, that's exactly, you know, we had, like, that the one gas place. Station. The yep. gas station or the sand pit. Or, um, Casey's. Yeah, it's a gas station. It's, it's versus Which is, it gets gas. Yeah. It's one of those old-fashioned yeah. hand-to-pump gas stations, too. Like, you gotta, like, lift up the handle. It's got, like, that, that, like, um analog yeah 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 yep (laughs) so yeah um her brother ended up calling their parents obviously because he was left alone and she was grounded and some of her privileges were taken away but she was still able to keep in contact with jeremy and her parents decided the best thing to do was family therapy. They wanted to talk it out, wanted to get some help and for a while Jasmine seemed to be like doing a lot better she wasn't getting in trouble she was staying in school more and everything seemed to be going well and um her parents wanted to give her a reward because she was doing so well so they're like we'll take you to a concert and we can go to a show but we are going to go with you and when her parents lost sight of her they went looking and they found her in the alley making out with jeremy and so they didn't they had never seen him before they didn't realize that she was dating a 23 year old and they forbid her from speaking with him ever again because once again she is 12 and he is 23 (laughs) i don't know if i've gotten that point across yet jasmine say it a few more times because it's so important right it is it is jasmine then wrote this email to jeremy using a library computer so I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. So far we set. 
I'm going to try and call you, but I really don't know if I'll be able to. They're treating me like shit. I hope, I hate them so much, but I hope this won't bring us far apart. I hope to talk to you soon. Love you with all of my heart. And Jeremy replied, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with like details and stuff. I wish they wouldn't treat you that way. Grr. It angers me to hear that. He typed out, Grr. Don't act like you haven't either. Grr. Well, yeah, like, uh, yeah. But still, the thank you, thank you for the voices. That I needed. <laughs> I, like I, I dislike there. them very much. Don't worry. I love you too, <laughs> my sexy beast. I hope to hear from you soon too. Take care of my love. You have the key to my heart, and soon enough, you shall have the heart. If I die, because if I give it to you now, I die, and you won't be able to hear how much I love you. That sounds, that's so fucking beautiful. It's the worst thing <laughs> in the world. You might have my heart soon if I die, because if I if die. Because if I die, <laughs> I'll die. Oh, God. It, I don't know if you got it, but I'm going to die. She's gonna die if she dies. Just die. In case you want to know what I'm happens gonna when die. You die. <laughs> so, uh, with this those bitch. two lovely emails, uh, they began to plan to kill her parents and her little brother. Uh, they were not quiet about it, like even a little. They just started telling everybody online or in person. They were just openly searching it on their computers. They were typing it out on multiple forums. Just, they didn't give a fuck who heard. And no one took them seriously. Not a single person. And Jasmine kept telling him that if he really loved her, he would do it. But he was having a difficult time. So this is when it gets a little flip-floppy. Where you find out that she was totally also manipulating him. Like a whole bunch. Oh, yeah. No, I I, And they are able to... From the text messages. But, like, you're able to really see like when they went looking online and they saw these messages back and forth just how much she really was you know forcing his hand in a lot of ways which i mean he is still absolutely a predator and a piece of shit like i said human ashtray but she definitely took his hand and led him down this specific path of murder i don't think he would have murdered um if it wasn't for jasmine piece of shit absolutely murderer probably not um so he he went to talk to one of his friends and he was having a really hard time with what she was asking him to do and he said jasmine is pretty much gonna break up with me if i don't do this soon so he asked his friend for help but his friend didn't think he was capable and just kind of brushed him off and uh jeremy purchased a bunch of beer drank it all then went to his mom's house. I wish I knew drank what kind of beer. Everything that she had in her house and a bottle of vodka. Oh. And then he went over beer, to his vodka, friend's house. And miscellaneous. Yep, just whatever he could find. This guy was just putting it all to his face. And so super drunk, he then watched Natural Born Killers with a friend, uh, which he considered to be the most romantic story of all time. 
What a good, and, what a good hype movie to get yourself mm-hmm. going, huh? It is. The parallels, I mean, they it, it's so obvious. They ripped so much of it from it. But he made the comment that they would they would kill her brother. They were going to kill Jasmine's brother. And that that was the, the main difference between he and Jasmine and Mallory. And yeah. And so, uh, like once again, friend didn't take him seriously at all. How and would you just imagine what kind of, what kind of, I don't know if I'd spend a lot of time with a dude who would just say shit Just like constantly that. talking and about like, going to murder his girlfriend's parents. Like, and, and if I genuinely don't think I can take him seriously, why am I just hanging out with him? Yeah. What is he, what is he, what is he bringing to my table? And he's what super he, drunk is, while hanging out too. And oh, all oh of my God. This. It, yeah. So it's, it's even it, worse. It's pretty much a confession. Well, I guess, I suppose that says a lot about his friend. I guess so. Yeah. I bet you his friend's the kind of guy that would, that would also probably do some weird and strange shit. <sighs> anyway. So after this, Jeremy then went to his drug dealer's house and had some cocaine plus more vodka. And Just then after that, he, he felt pretty good. So he decided this was the time to go to Jasmine's house. And he threw a pine cone at her window to get her attention. But when she like went to let him inside he was so drunk that he made a lot of noise and alerted everybody in the house and her mom came down the stairs in just her nightgown but instead of jasmine she's met with jeremy with a butcher knife she starts screaming he stabs her nearly a dozen times her dad runs butcher knife the dad yeah you are like you think about the long side of the blade rather than it's sharp and going in. Yeah, you're not stabbing straight in. It's like like multiple it's... inch slash stabs, like stab wounds that are coming uh-huh. in at an angle into you. Like, oh, ooh, ooh, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, dad runs down the stairs with a screwdriver because it was the only thing he could find. But the mother's body is already on the floor dead by the time he gets down there. This is what Jeremy said. He came at me real fast. I was scared. I thought I was going down. I backed up. I tripped and I fell. And he jumped on top of me and attempted to stab me in the chest with a screwdriver. He grabbed at my face and I sh- and shoved his thumbs in my eyes. Mark was trying to choke Jeremy as he was being stabbed. And he asked, why? And Jeremy responded, because you treat your daughter like shit. It's what your daughter wanted. And those are the last words that Mark ever heard. Man, Jasmine went up to her brother's room, followed by Jeremy. Her brother was scared and freaking out, and Jasmine went into his room and cradled him. And, like, he was laying down and she was cradling him in her arms. And her brother was telling telling her that, or she was telling her brother that it was okay and that everything was going to be fine. And then she started to squeeze on his neck, trying to render him unconscious. He was able to break free and started to run away, but met Jeremy in the hallway covered in blood. He starts telling Jeremy that he's scared and I'm too young to die. But Jasmine thought her brother was too sensitive and that it would be wrong to leave him an orphan or to let him live after what they had done to her parents. Jacob's throat was slit and was and he was stabbed. And the worst part, when the detectives went to the house and they were going through... He had tried to protect himself with a toy lightsaber that he had. Oh, no! Because it was just covered in blood. And he had... It was clear that he had tried to use it in self-defense. 
And then Jasmine and Jeremy go to a party after this. All smiles and laughs. That's the worst and they spend segue ever. That's the all worst. night all over each other. Yeah. It's a terrible segue. It's horrific. Oh, they I'm are so absolute sad. animals. Oh, the lightsaber. Yeah, the lightsaber is a really gut-wrenching touch. And they, uh, once again, this is a 12-year-old girl and a 23-year-old man. And they are all over each other at this party. And they don't care who's seeing, who's saying what. They don't give a fuck. And they're bragging. And he's going around telling everybody that he, quote, gutted them like a fish. And Jasmine's, like, laughing and talking about how, quote, my little brother gargled. It's a lot. So when cops first arrived there, they uh, they had thought that it had been their Jasmine had been kidnapped and that they she was a missing person. And a statement went out as an amber alert for the twelve year old girl, but they could tell from a bloody light switch that it was clear that it was done by more than one. Per- the murder was done by more than one person. I I don't know how they were able to tell it. I'm not a blood splatter analysis or you know, I'm not a part of the CSI, and. But they were able to tell that she was, in fact, not a missing person. And despite... um, Where is it? Sorry, I lost my place. So the cops then go to, once they realize that she's not a missing person and that she's more than likely had something to do with this crime, uh, they go to her guidance counselor at the school and they ask her questions and she, you know, tells them that she's been troubled a whole bunch recently and they she was like well i can look through her locker if you want see if there's any clues in there or anything and they were able to find a drawing in jasmine's locker that depicted a girl lighting her family on fire and then running to her boyfriend's truck and so the youngest person in canada ever to be charged with a crime was jasmine richardson and she was officially um a missing not a missing person anymore but a wanted person and so they were able to track her down. They like she and Jeremy figured they had to run and they ended up like catching a ride with a friend that didn't know about the murders. And then they were went to get gas and they saw their face on the newspapers and the friend like bought the newspaper was like, what the fuck did you guys do? And they were just laughing about it and just like, it's okay. It's totally fine. There's no big deal. We just, yeah, we just killed my whole family. It's no big deal. The, the, and, amount that they, the amount that they talked about it yeah. was just obscene. Yeah, exactly. They did not give a single flying fuck. They, and they, like, no remorse whatsoever. Not a single person who saw them during this time ever said that they showed any, any remorse. And they were able to catch them um, before they got out of the state. And so this... <sighs> Uh, sorry her she when she finally opened up it was to a cop that started talking to her like a peer because they tried to do the good cop bad cop but it didn't work out and then as soon as one was just like went to hang out with her basically she just spilled everything and she initially blamed um jeremy for stabbing her brother she said that she or for killing him that she stabbed him in the chest but she couldn't go on with it so jeremy was the one that finished him off and that she didn't actually kill anybody she was there 
but she didn't actually participate and she didn't want him to suffer. That's the whole reason that he died and right. but made sure to defend Jeremy saying that the only reason he did it was out of for how much love he had for her. And so the cops asked her to write a letter to her parents to apologize for what she had done, which also doubled it as a confession. It read, ugh, it's, ugh. Dear my loverly parent parental units. Just, I'm writing yeah, such a 12-year-old little the parental girl. unit thing. Yep. My loverly parental units. I am writing in response to the events of Sunday morning. A terrible thing happened. Something I feel is all my fault. You must know I love you dearly and you are in my prayers. I wish peace upon your souls in the Summerland. To my little brother, I apologize for letting you hear what happened and also for causing you any pain or frightening you so much. To my parents, I hope you know that through all of what has happened, I loved you the whole time. I wish that I could take everything back. I wish that it hadn't happened. I wish that you were with me right now because now I have no one. I pray you can forgive me and Jeremy too because he was under the influence of mind-altering substances and did it out of love for me. Fucking gag me. He is the most possibly the kindest person I have ever met. His wish being for my happiness. Through all of the fights and hatred exchanged, I still love you. I'm sorry my sarcasm was taken to heart. I never meant to hurt you. I pray you can be at peace somehow. This wow. Little... Touching. Touching. Yeah. But don't hate Jeremy, you know, the guy who killed you. He's the sweetest person I've ever met. You'd totally like him if you gave him a chance. Even though he killed you. Yeah. <sighs> Jeremy said that he freaked out because he was on drugs and that he blamed Jasmine for killing her brother claiming that she was the one who cut his throat and that she never showed any remorse or said, shed a single tear. In the second letter that Jeremy sent to her, he proposed to her. And uh. she accepted, of course. And they were both placed in separate facilities until court and charged with three counts of murder. And then, of course, a really fucking weird and gross cult following popped up around Jeremy, made up of who? Oh, Preteen and teenage girls. Yeah, during that, that were time period, which were still buying their goth gear on eBay from mm -hmm. the UK. You know, yeah. they couldn't like get enough of him because he's so mysterious and dark. And oh my god, he must have loved her so much. Oh, it's so fucking dumb. No, I wish no, no. my boyfriend would kill my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking awful. And he wouldn't shut up. Or stop bragging when he was in prison. He ended up, like, confessing a whole bunch to an undercover cop, like, a plant that was in his cell. It was just so dumb. And, of course, wow. they had separate trials that was, because... That's, that's, a, that's an easy that's an easy one right there. Yeah. But he, he still always uh, said that Jasmine was the one who killed her brother. And uh, so Jasmine entered a plea of not guilty because she was under the control of a predator. She was found guilty of all three counts. And given 10 years, six incarceration and four probation. So, um, yeah, yeah, they, they didn't take that whole under the control of a predator thing. I mean, which she absolutely was, so but I right think now. she was actually more in control. She was, he was still a predator, but he 
she was in control of this whole situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. She's out. But she was given a, um, a different style of rehabilitation. It was, it's a specialized sentence called uh, rehabilitative custody and supervision, which is, I think it's kind of like the place where I worked for like with the teenagers that I worked with. So a group home, ideally. Kind of something. yes, but I would say I would assume more now. lockdown intense. Yeah, because this was two thousand six, uh, yes. so she was released in two thousand sixteen. And when she was uh, released, this is what the judge said to her. Um, oh no, this is when she was going to jail. Okay. The judge said, "Jasmine, you can't undo what you've done to your mom, dad, and brother." However, what you can do is honor their memory by dedicating your life to becoming a woman your parents and brother would be proud of. And she said that Jasmine was the perfect candidate for rehabilitation. And uh, she did, in fact, spend her last final years of incarceration taking college courses. And she was released in 2016 of all court-ordered conditions. So she was freed and had her name changed. Jeremy claimed self-defense and that he freaked out because he was on drugs and he was given life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. So he could be up for par- parole um, eventually, but he's got life. Yeah, he got the worst of it. Mm-hmm. She he also wasn't yeah. 12, and he also was a fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what's insane is six years of incarceration that was half of her age she's 12 years old right exactly yeah. like that's and in- she gets and she gets to live an entire full life yep yep so that was that you guys it was oh, super yeah. fun and light-hearted it was it was an episode that i i really wanted to do and i'm happy no i enjoyed this it. subject me too yeah it it kind of enjoy like is I a said, weird it word. brought me it brought me it, it put my feet back on the ground in the sense of like looking around and understanding and appreciating what I have and the good in my life. You know, mm. it's one of those trade outs for it, but also just fascinating to, to know more because I had never necessarily thought about, you know, a teenager or a child murdering somebody necessarily. When I think of my true crimes and my true crime interests, I think more on the lines of an adult and how they got there. And the reference to their childhood is more or less to help develop who they are now not necessarily that things began in their childhood. So mm-hmm. this was just a very different take on it, especially knowing that so many of them are released and oh yeah, out, out into the world and with changed names and protected identities. And that's that's the thing, man. Is there's like, always that there's always that wonder. Children have a are better candidates for rehabilitation too. That makes sense because they are still malleable in a lot of ways. Yeah, not always, sure. but well, Craig Price. Not always. Yeah, not always. But, I mean, he's done his best to prove exactly what kind of person he is. You know? Like, yeah. he is... He he would never... He's not ever going to be rehabilitated. He is going to be a violent, angry individual his entire life. Who is yeah. extremely dangerous. And unfortunately, like, they got him early away. enough where, you know... Mm-hmm. It, they got him early enough where he didn't hurt any other person, necessarily. Yeah. Well, I mean, I understand. Four is a lot of people, but it's uh, thankfully, I feel like in his case, we are very lucky it was only four. Exactly. He didn't didn't make it to his 40s and, you know, Ted Ted Bundy'd his way through life. So, yeah. He's been 
he's been in prison since he was 15 and he is 48 now. He is a, he's a pretty big piece of shit. So yeah, though, I actually, I know it is dark, but it, it, like you said, it is fun. It is fascinating to learn new cases like this. I love it. Um, I'm glad we did it, but we are going to be doing something more upbeat and lighthearted for next week. We got a couple yeah. things in the works that I'm pretty excited about. I love the topics. They're goofy, and we still yeah. haven't picked a specific topic that we're going to be doing yet, have we? We've got we got a number that we can choose from, though. Yeah, good. I do want something lighthearted. I, I'm I'm excited to cool it off a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool and then we'll bit. bring it back down to the darkness again pretty soon. And for anybody who uh, wants to know how my gardening is going, it's going great. That's all I wanted to say. Nice. I'm super happy for you. <laughs> my mint plant died. It like oh. it didn't even last a week. You were so proud. <laughs> it's this is well, what didn't I do. You, you pretty much ate the mint, didn't you? Didn't you? For the you I it did, for but drinks, the, the I did, but I didn't finish all of it. There were quite a few leaves left, and then the soil got moldy, and I didn't water it. Like it just uh, was never dried out since the day I bought it. Did it, there were there were there drainage holes in the bottom? Yeah, there was. But I don't know what happened. I don't know. It anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> if you guys ever have any ideas or topics that you want covered and you, or you just want to get a hold of us and say, Hey, um, or let us know where you're from. You can always either go to Instagram. You can find us at Kat and Laney. That's K A T A N D L A N E Y. Or you can uh, contact us at contagious curiosity pod at gmail.com. And we will respond to you guys. Yeah, I think I'm going to try and get our Twitter page a little bit more active. I have never had a Twitter before in my life, okay. so I've and been I, begging you to just like... I don't want you to have to do that. <laughs> so I'll just... I'm, I'm going to end up um, working on that so that we'll be a little bit more accessible on more platforms. But we really yes. would like to hear from you. Absolutely. And obviously we are not professionals. We are not... Um, we're, we're figuring this out as we go. We're, we're doing yeah. this slowly. We're doing this on our own pace. So yeah. we don't know, <laughs> you're you along know, for the ride. That's why we that's why we use the word eclectic. Yes. It's what we want when we want it. It's how we feel. We're, we're two busy-ass individuals who, like I said, when we sit down and we talk to each other, we just kind of go with the flow anyways. And most of the time, we, you spend a lot of time on Reddit. I do. And find some really in, interesting and crazy things. And I just watch a lot of media. I just watch <laughs> a lot of television <laughs> and a lot of movies, documentaries, like, and I'm, I'm constantly doing it as my background noise rather than music. So together we usually bring something weird or disgusting, sometimes, oftentimes disgusting to the table when we talk in private regardless. So yeah, come talk yeah, to so us. Yeah, so we're just, we're bringing this ideas. to the table for you guys to enjoy the nastiness too. We want you to be <laughs> grossed out and unintrigued and, you know, all that good stuff. I don't know if I wonder why you listen to us yet, but I'm leading, I'm leading into the disappointment of like eventually my modesty will will cease to will cease to exist. oh yeah so it always does <laughs> rears its ugly little head <laughs> okay guys we love you thank you so much for listening we really 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 love that you're here with us yeah have a good day so long and thanks for all the fish <laughs>